Hi, I'm Ellen Newhouse, and welcome to Heart and Soul. Are you ready to live a soulfully inspired life? If you are ready to dive deep, get seriously honest with yourself, and learn to trust your deep wisdom, then this is the place for you. I'll be sharing unfiltered stories from my own life and those of many other courageous, creative entrepreneurs and transformational leaders who have dug deep inside themselves to heal, honor their amazing wisdom, and dare to take inspired action. No more sitting by the sidelines wishing for a more satisfying life. It's time for you to become the person you have always dreamed of being. Have a career and a life you love. Join us each week to be spiritually uplifted and inspired into action. And oh yes, I'll be giving you homework to get you moving closer to your dreams. Welcome back to Heart and Soul. I'm your host, Ellen Newhouse, and this morning we have this beautiful man named James Brown, who is a meditation teacher. And you guys, if you had seen this morning, you would know that it is no mistake that I am talking to James this morning. And I was so frazzled that I completely lost his bio. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to ask James to introduce himself. Good morning, James. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for bearing with me. Thanks, Ellen. It's really nice to be here. And, you know, I can relate to being frazzled and flustered and discombobulated and all those beautiful adjectives for that crazy state of consciousness, because for the last month, we have been enmeshed in the swirl and chaos of moving, moving our family from one house to another house across mm. town. And so we're essentially like, where are those spoons? Do we even bring those spoons? Where should we put the towels? This bin doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. We have to buy it. It's a, and so, yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm, I'm familiar. And hopefully what we'll talk about today is we'll get to a place where we understand that that despite our resistances, despite our misconceptions, if we can mm. just find ways to incorporate some fairly simple techniques into our life, then mm. we'll be able to find a little bit of calm in the middle of whatever might be going on. Because yeah. becoming a meditator, becoming a meditation teacher, you know, it doesn't guarantee your life is going to be all cartwheels and moonbeams and, you know, like really? life still gets super <laughs> hectic, but, yeah. but you have the capacity to be centered in that calm, in that well, chaos. So, I, yeah. I love that because right now, I mean, as you and I both know, this is a really, really crazy, very unstable time that we're living in. Yeah. And it's stirred I, a lot of people up. It has. And I believe, sorry, people, but I believe that even when we heal from this pandemic, and we will, but it's going to take longer than I think most people imagine. Unfortunately, I think after that, we're going to have a lot of other crazy, hectic things um, called climate changes. And so I love that you're offering how we're going to get balanced and calmer in the midst of chaos. Yeah. And in the midst of chaos, it's interesting because, you know, I have a friend who had a child about 10 months ago and he's mm. super inner attentive, control freak guy. <laughs> and 
And he asked me, because he knows I have kids and that right. I seem to be able to enjoy parenting. Right. And and I'm not always overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And he said, when does it go back to normal? And I went, never. Like your whole idea of normal is gone. Yes. Like there's never going to be normal. And I no. think that that's the thing. Everyone wants to go back to normal and they don't understand that there's never going to be normal. Like normal is based on, you know, the endless repetition of a previous cycle, but that never happens. And so, you know, hopefully what we can learn from a pandemic like this is that we can be resilient and we can be adaptable and, um, you know, and we can not grab onto what we think of as normal and be open and available to what is. So Exactly. And also, if you think about it, if normal got us to here, why the hell would we want to go back to normal? You know, I mean, that wouldn't make sense. And for all of you who are listening, do not dismay. James is going to help us. And for everything (laughs) I'm saying, James is going to help us through this. You asked me to give you a little introduction to myself. And I think that, that it's appropriate to sort of start not with who I am now, but where I came from, because Mm. I was, I'm the least likely person to be a meditation teacher. I spent most of my adult life as a militant asshole atheist. I was angry, caustic. I mean, it was funny (laughs) and had a good personality and, Uh you know, could sing a little bit. Like, I can't sing and dance like James Brown, but, you know, and it was kind of fun at parties and, and, you know, witty and kind of pleasant to be around. But no one would have said things like, oh, you're wise or you have a calming presence or, you know. And in fact, when I started becoming a teacher, one of my old bosses in advertising, a guy who worked for him now had learned from me. And he mm-hmm. said, wait, James Brown teaches meditation. <laughs> he is the that. least likely person I would have thought. And wow. that statement itself encompasses the power of meditation. And so I got into meditation in my early thirties. I'm 60 now. So it was a while ago. Okay. And I got into meditation because I went through a phase where I was rereading books that I had been assigned in college and high school, which is a great exercise, really worth doing. And I, at that point, had just put down and finished rereading a book called Siddhartha, which is Herman Hesse's book about Buddha as a teenager, kind of coming of age story. And I put that book down and I thought, what a great book. And then I thought, literally, the next thought I had was, I bet more interesting women would be more interested in me if I meditated. (laughs) Right, because at that point, holy mission, James. Oh yeah, and that's not how the Dalai Lama got into it. Let's put it that way. And so I, I, I um, you know, because at that point I'm in my early 30s. I'm trying to get a sense of who I am in the world as a man. Like, you know, would a linen duvet cover be appropriate for someone like me? You know, what kind of books should I have front and center on my shelf? What kind of, you know, just. You know, would I wear an ascot at a special function? Oh. You know, I was reading Esquire magazine. And so I oh, thought and this if is I had all inner, all outer, by the way. Yeah, Just yeah. FYI. And so I, I thought, well, if I had some Buddha books on my shelf, if I had a mm. Buddha sculpture in my bathroom, if I could, you know, casually say things like, Hey, I'm going to the Zen Center this weekend. I don't know if you're into that kind of thing. You oh know? my God. Oh and my so God. I leapt into Buddhism because I thought Buddha invented meditation. I literally thought there was a guy named Buddha oh my and God. that his, whether it was a first name or a nickname or something, and that he <laughs> invented this thing called meditation. And so I went to Zen centers and my preconceived idea, even though I had never meditated, I had a pretty strong idea of what that was mm. going to be like. Mm. And those early misinformed or underinformed perceptions were validated, right? Because I went to Zen centers, 
They were very serene. Everyone walked mm. very softly, quietly. No one high-fived. No one, <laughs> you know, right. talked loudly. We mm. sat very still on mm. uncomfortable cushions. We were asked to focus and concentrate our faces oh off, God. basically. My worst and I tried there. different... I tried different Zen centers of different degrees of austerity mm-hmm. over the course of about a year and a half. And I mm-hmm. came away with a real love for Buddhist philosophy, hmm. the ideas that informed the practices, but I never really thought that the practice fit me. Yeah. I never thought I was doing it right. I never thought that I was, you know, I felt, felt like a fraud, honestly. I just, yeah. you know, I remember sitting in a Zen center once and it was a particularly austere one where we're supposed to acknowledge pain and, and itches and things, but not indulge them. And I had bashed my knee in a pickup basketball game. It was really aching, but I was trying to fight through that. And I had all these anxious feelings coming up about my girlfriend, who I was convinced was breaking up with me. And I was right. And I, I opened my eyes and I looked around at all these super calm faces and I just thought, I'm a fraud. Like, I don't yeah. belong here. Yeah. And then I think I regathered myself. And, and I'm sure if someone had looked at me after that regathering, they would have thought, look mm. at that guy. He's so calm, right? Which is what we do all the time, right? We compare right. our interior experience with other people's exteriors. Okay. I need to stop right there. And okay. I need you to say that again, because it's so profound. We compare our interior experience with other people's exteriors, right? Mm. We see, like, we walk in on a date and we're maybe struggling in our relationship or uncertain mm. about this person. And we see a couple in the corner booth yeah. and, and they seem to be smiling at that moment. And we think, Oh my God, look at them. Like, Oh, he got the corner booth. Oh, he's so much more compassionate <laughs> and considerate than I, I should have called ahead and got the corner booth. They must be so oh in God. love. Right. Oh and, and, you know, we look at a person like, Oh, he just got that new Audi. He must be so happy. They just got this right. promotion. They must be you know, he's found his calling. It's, right. We do it all the time. Right. And it's yeah. the source of a lot of suffering. And we never um, win. We never no, win. You could never win in that situation. Never win. No. Yeah. And now, and now we have social media. media right. right. It's only gotten because worse. Because we can, yeah, we have all these ways of projecting an image into the world and comparing ourselves against other people's projected images. And we have the the unfortunate consequence of knowing that our reality is not as perfect and curated as our image and so not only do we feel insecure comparing our projected image to others, we know that we're frauds. <laughs> what are we going to do, James? Yeah. I mean, help us, help us out of this mess. Yeah. And so, I mean, mess. you know, and so I gave up convinced I yeah. couldn't meditate. I was convinced that my mind was too crazy. My life was too busy. Mm. And so when people tell me that they can't meditate, that I like, I know what they're thinking. I know what they're going through, but I also know that they're wrong. I know because I got to a place where it wasn't until my life actually got crazy and Mm. my, you know, I was struggling with a lot of things. I got Mm. married to a woman who didn't seem to mind that I didn't meditate, but Mm. now she's very happy. We both do. Mm -hmm. We adopted our first child, which turned our lives upside down and Mm. affected our relationship. And and it got to a place where I wasn't being a very good dad. I wasn't being a very good husband. Mm. I had a terrible job that I was on the verge of losing and then did lose. Thank God. But in that, you know, just chaos, I discovered Mm. there was a different way to meditate that wasn't Mm. about sitting rigidly. That wasn't about trying to train and tame your monkey mind. Mm. It wasn't about trying to have fewer thoughts or nicer thoughts. It was a way of allowing yourself to meditate, of learning to get out of the way. Mm. of stop being the stick that stirs yourself up the way of being in meditation, not doing meditation. And that changed my life. And it changed my life so much that inexplicably I ended up 
sort of leaving a career of 25 years in advertising wow. as a creative director Whoa. to become a meditation teacher of oh all things. Oh my God. That, now so, I was in advertising. People must've looked at you like you're doing what? Mm-hmm. Because you were probably making really good money. Yeah. I go into ad agencies now. I do a lot of talks in agencies and teach courses in agencies and all kinds of companies. Wow. Uh, and I think there's just this native interest. People are like, wait, you used to yell at me about typefaces exactly. and now you teach meditation? <laughs> exactly. So what yeah. is this type of meditation called? It's called many things. It's called Vedic meditation. It's called flow meditation. It's hmm. called TM. It's called, oh, there's wow. all kinds of things that that can be used to describe this basic approach. And, and they're all different in different ways, but they all spring from a similar, a similar approach. There's teachers like Adi Ashanti who teach Certain things, there's more direct path teachings. There's a lot of ways in which it can be described. Okay. And of course, none of those ways in which it can be described are the practice. And so and people get all territorial and, and oh, proprietary. So, and, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, so there's a certain global organization that has put a trademark on a certain phrase and they get all persnickety when other people who don't work for them teach. And because they think that having a trademark on a phrase implies they should have a copyright on the approach. Oh boy. Oh boy. And so, <laughs> so, but, okay. you know, so yeah. can you describe this? How is this different than the rigid kind of meditation that I think a lot of people have in their mind, like you had in your mind? How well, is it different? Essentially it's that you make no attempt to curate your experience to monitor your experience. It's, it's that you don't go into meditation with the idea that you're trying to have fewer thoughts or nicer thoughts. It, oh. It's that you're not trying to get better at focusing and concentrating. Mm. It's that you're going to let the doer in you not do so much. It's not the practice of doing nothing, but it's doing mm. something as lightly as possible. And the reason I think it can be effective mm. is that most of us are actually exhausted with trying mm-hmm. to stay on top of everything, yeah. of trying to stay in control of everything. I mean, I teach a lot of very type A people, very driven, <laughs> active, engaged people. <laughs> and those are people who have a lot on their plate and a lot going on and a lot of responsibility. And they're exhausted. And if you, them, yeah. if you can show them, if you can show them, you know, and you have to be able to show people. If you show right. people that, if they just learn to let go, mm-hmm. they'll have a better experience. Mm-hmm. Then they're willing to listen to you. Okay. So right? I'm curious about something because I am probably, no mm-hmm. wonder I'm so drawn to you. <laughs> I am probably one of your type A people. I do far uh-huh. too much, don't sleep enough. So how can you show that to me? Well, let's do a little practice session. Okay. okay? Let's All right. do that. So, so, um, I teach a practice, so I teach a practice called Vedic meditation, which describes a certain course. I teach that same approach to meditation in a different way, and I call that flow meditation. And in both those approaches, I have people use a mantra, a very simple, resonant sound. It has no meaning, but mantras require a little more instruction. They're a little too easy to misuse. So what I want to do is teach you how to meditate using the breath, but in a different way, because most people who have tried any kind of meditation have used the breath, mm-hmm. but mostly they've used the breath as an anchor, as something to focus on, Yeah. right? And I'm going to teach you how to use the breath like a diving board. Wow, right? I love that. And so the reason I use that, that analogy is because most people 
including you and including probably everyone in your audience, has either jumped off a diving board or at least seen someone do it, right? right? So we know a couple of important things. One, we know that the diving board allows for a more dynamic experience, right? There's the Olympics are going on right now. There are many events based on people jumping off diving boards and platforms. There are no Olympic events based on people just jumping off the side of the pool, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's not as interesting, right? Hmm. But we also know that in, in addition to allowing for a more dynamic experience, that you have to let go of the board, right? The sport of diving is not the sport of diving boarding. So you're not trying to stay connected to it. So we're going to use the breath in a way that in which we start with it and we have an intention of being aware of the breath, but we're not going to hold on to that intention. We're going to be willing to let it go. And we're going to be willing to allow the experience to flow, to unfold, right? It's going to be very tempting to think that your mind is wandering. Because from the time you were a tiny human, whenever you Mm -hmm. first entered preschool, Mm -hmm. you have been told that you have a wandering mind. And every time you've been told that, it's been a bad thing, Mm -hmm. right? If you're not paying attention to the blackboard, you know, if you're not listening to the person Mm -hmm. across the table from you. I mean, we've look, we've all been on dates or interviews, which is really just a different kind of date. And we get busted (laughs) not listening to the person, you know, and someone might even say, are you even listening to me? And no one ever, when we're caught, goes, no, what of it? Mm-hmm. Right. We always like, like, oh, I'm sorry. And I got a lot of my mind or I had something in my eye. Right. Right. And so we've been taught wandering mind is a bad mind. Mm. And so in this practice of meditation, so I call it flow meditation. Right. Okay. This is going to be flow breath meditation. Okay. And, you know, we have this concept of a stream of consciousness. So mm-hmm. think of that as a literal stream flowing across a landscape. Okay. What do we know about a stream? One, we know that the stream is always going where it is supposed to be going. It is never going left when it should be going right, mm-hmm. right? The stream is always running as fast or slowly as it's supposed to be running. It's never deep when it should be shallow. It's never shallow when it should be deep, mm-hmm. right? It's not an irrigation channel. It's not supposed to be going anywhere in particular. The stream is actually flowing across the landscape, taking the most efficient natural path through that landscape, mm-hmm. right? It is what it is, and it is always right. So, and nobody that I know criticizes a stream. Actually, there's one person. I have a friend whose uh, name is Mitch. That is not actually his name, but he is one of the most anal retentive control freak people I know. And when he heard that I was telling this story in my classes, he asked me not to use his actual name. So we'll call him Mitch. So I took Mitch on a hike. And he, he seemed kind of ill at ease. And I said, hey, Mitch, what's going on? He goes, it's just so messy. Oh, my goodness. And I looked around from his perspective. And, yeah, the forest is a very messy place, right? There's sticks and (laughs) branches falling and rotting woods. At one point, we found, like, a dead rodent or something on the trail. And he asked if a ranger was going to come by and clean it up. And I go, no, no one's going to clean it up. Right? But it was when we were having some lunch and we were on a little rise elevated about 60 feet above the stream bed. Mm-hmm. And he was looking down and he said, you know, I don't think she'd go left around those rocks. I think it should go right. Don't you think that would be prettier? Oh my God. Because oh I don't God. know if it's me, but I go, of course it's you. Like you're criticizing <laughs> nature. What are you making a top, a list of your top 10 trees? <laughs> and again, all of this is not to make fun of Mitch. Oh, poor Mitch. Yeah. Right. It's just to say that we all have, that voice in our heads, right? Right. That tell us how things are supposed to be mm. and how things should be. And wouldn't it be better if, 
And so when we do this little short practice session, this is going to be some of the least compelling podcast audio in the world because we're going to be <laughs> silent for a little while. Well, that's right? perfect. Is that at some point you or your audience is going to hear a voice in your head that's going to say, no, you shouldn't be thinking that, right? Those are too, the, too many thoughts. Uh, or you shouldn't be having those thoughts. You should be having mm. meditation thoughts. You shouldn't be thinking about your to-do list or you should be thinking about compassion for all beings or <laughs> things like that. Or, or right. you should be lighting up your heart chakra, right? <laughs> and just realize that when you have those thoughts, okay. judging the experience as mm -hmm. it flows across the transom of your perception, that that's just Mitch's voice. Okay. Right? And his voice, that voice has as much authority in this approach to meditation as it did on that hike, hmm. right? So I want to ask you to close your eyes. Okay. But first, make sure you're sitting comfortably. Yeah. And that means you're sitting in a chair like you and I are. I can see that before <laughs> I close your eyes with back support. And we're going to allow ourselves to use that back support. Okay. I teach a practice where I tell people you can slouch and scratch your way to enlightenment. You're not trying to sit <laughs> rigidly like a monk. Okay. So I want you to close your eyes and just bring your awareness to the breath. And but not focusing on the breath, not like a selfie on the breath, just kind of like a wide angle shot with the breath kind of near the middle. Right. So we have this open, easy awareness of the breath, a wide circle of awareness, which means that we can be aware of the breath. And we can be aware of all the sounds around us in this moment at the same time. And we're not trying to concentrate to narrow our attention on the breath and not hear the sounds around us. Notice that you can be aware of the breath and you can be aware of the body. Different sensations flowing in from here and there. And mostly notice that you can be aware of the breath and be thinking other thoughts at the same time. <coughs> Try it now. There is no conflict. This is just the flow of the experience. And that flow of the experience will include awareness of the breath, awareness of thoughts, awareness of noises and body sensations, right? What we're training for here is wide angle present moment awareness, not narrow focused attention. And so I'm going to stop talking and your job and the job of your listeners is going to be really, really simple. Unless you're driving. And if you're driving, don't be doing any of these things. Don't even have your eyes closed. Right. Your job is to be really, we're going to be really simple. It's to have this easy, open awareness of the breath and have an intention of being aware of the breath. Right. But you're not going to try very hard to enforce that intention. So as the experience unfolds, there will be at some point at which you realize you are no longer thinking about the breath. You've completely forgotten. But in this case, good job. Fantastic. Congratulations. You're doing it exactly right. You're off the diving board. You've been into the dive. And now it's just a sign to come back to the diving board, come back to the breath. But here's the kicker, not trying to hold onto it tighter, not trying to do a better job. All right. So let's begin.
remember, you're not trying to have fewer thoughts or nicer thoughts. You're not trying to stay fixed on the breath. We're thinking the breath in this very easy way, in a way that allows there to be space for everything else in the experience. And we're going to allow that experience to flow. And when we realize we're off the breath, that's just part of the experience. And we come back to it, not trying to do better. We're just allowing ourselves to relax into the experience, whatever that experience is, without resisting any part of the experience. In fact, if you want to notice something other than how many thoughts you're having, notice how relaxed your body is getting, how your shoulders are sloping downward, how your breath is very shallow. And now begin to pay a little bit more attention to the breath, pay a little bit more attention to the inhale and the exhale. And continue breathing in this more intentional way for a few more cycles of the breath. And notice that just by narrowing our attention a little bit more onto the breath, which we might call focusing on the breath more, that our breath starts to get fuller, which is a sign that our metabolic rate is beginning to rise compared to what I'm guessing was very shallow breathing just a few moments ago. And so we'll talk about that, the link between mental effort and bodily activity. All right, whenever you're ready, you can let go of the breath. You can stretch if you want, open your eyes. Oh, my. <laughs> All right. So that was a little taste of this <sighs> flow approach to meditation, of not, not trying to meditate, basically. Yeah. And I think what people can discover fairly easily, fairly quickly, is that it's quite possible to have a deeper experience in meditation to experience periods of, of comparative silence or maybe even silence mm -hmm. when they're not trying to go deep, mm -hmm. right? Because the part of you that wants to go deep 
is the shallowest part of you, right? The part of you that wants to silence your mind is the noisiest part of you. Well, actually, the noisiest part might be the critical part that says, well, right. I knew you couldn't do it. Yeah. You shouldn't be thinking about that, yeah. right? Yeah. Mitch's voice. Yeah. yeah. And so if you can show people that, <sighs> that success in meditation, we'll use that term, which I don't use very often, mm-hmm. is more easily achieved when I don't try to achieve it. Mm. Yeah. Then you can get people intrigued to... Well, let's see where this goes. It seems yeah. counterintuitive to everything I've ever been taught about how to be good at anything. Right. Right. Because right. reflect for a moment on how many times you and everyone in your audience and me has been reinforced on a very specific path, right? Mm. When you first enter preschool, mm. when you first enter preschool, right? Because kids are the most present people on the planet. Right. Toddlers, no one is more present than a toddler. Absolutely. Um, but they're useless, right? <laughs> so we start teaching them how to get things done. And to get things done, you have to narrow your attention. You have to focus. So think about this path. Hmm. You know, you're a little kid, you're in school and you're asked to focus, right? Okay. No, don't look at the light shimmering off the trees. Yes, that's beautiful. But bring your attention back to the blackboard. Concentrate now, focus and concentrate, right? And then to do something, right? Hmm. To take some action. Hmm. And then the all important question, how did you do? Did you do a good job? Oh, you didn't try so hard. Maybe if you tried harder, you'd do a better job. Mm. Oh, you did try harder. That's a good job. That's a really good capital (laughs) A. Now what's your next job? Capital Mm. B. And we have been reinforced on this path, linking focus and Mm. concentration, which is a kind of mental effort, Mm. right? With some action, with some accomplishment, with Mm. then criticism or acclaim, and then Mm. self-identity right? Mm-hmm. So you're either a good person who does a good job at getting things done, or you're kind of a screw up and you don't really do a good job, right? right? right. And we have been reinforced along that path millions of times in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so we grown into a life in which we think the way to be a good person is to get everything done mm-hmm. and to do a great job at everything, right? Which is absurd yeah. because your job is not to get everything done. Right. We have this idea that life is one long to do list. Are you sure? Right. To do list living. I mean, look, there's a lot of meditation apps, but there are at least a hundred times more productivity apps. Right. Right. True. And True. so we have this to do list culture where we think life is one long to do list. And at the end of that list is a last box that just says die. And someone checks that one for you. And then on your urn or your mushroom suit or your tombstone or whatever path you take out of this life, they wrote, Ellen got it all done. Yes. Oh my God, what a great life she must have had. She got it all done. Yay, Ellen. Yay. Right? But it's absurd because yeah. no one's ever going to get it all done. They would just give you more or you would give yourself more. Exactly. Right? Your job is not to do nothing. You're not a monk, mm-hmm. right? But I would put it that your job is actually to be present for whatever you're doing. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. that's called flow, actually. When you're fully present for an activity, that's mm-hmm. called flow. Mm. Right. And again, what are kids really good at being in flow? What are they terrible at getting things done? Mm. What are adults good at getting things done? What are they terrible at being present and happy? Right. And so we've traded one for the other when really what we want is both. Mm. We want the ability of a child to be engaged in the world and being able to notice and feel joy and flow. Mm. And we want to be able to get things done Mm. and they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, I love this. I never thought about this in in the terms of a child versus an adult. But what I'm fascinated by is that 
my experience of doing this, mm-hmm. first of all, I was grateful <laughs> because I have had a week that has just been going, 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 and not mm-hmm. stopping at all. So I was grateful for the permission. Thank you for giving me permission to stop. You know, yeah. so that was the first thing. But what I was amazed by was how quickly I noticed like everything that I've been holding up uh-huh. and all the emotions that I've been holding in. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you witnessed, I don't know if your eyes were open while you were taking me through mm-hmm. it. Oh, oh, interesting. My eyes because, were closed. Oh, okay. So what what you didn't see were all the tears that oh. just came flooding down my face. Yeah. And all of the emotion. And it's not just one emotion, right? Those tears are lots of different things that I've been holding up for like, you know, a couple of yeah. weeks, if if not more. And so do you think that that's one of the reasons people have resistance to meditation is that maybe they don't want to feel what's underneath the yeah. going, going, going. There's a, there's a, yeah, there's a lot there. So, so a, the release of emotion, even strong emotions mm-hmm. is a big part of the experience of meditation. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes, people are uncomfortable with that often. And the yeah. reason for that is because we've all been holding on to a lot of stuff. And again, no one holds on more tightly than the person who fears they might be losing control. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when we hold on tightly, we just ensure that we will fall harder. So there is a lot of so yeah, people are afraid of, of the uncontrollability of emotions or what they mm-hmm. perceive. You know, but but there's nothing sad about this is a really important point. And I make this point in classes I teach mm-hmm. when people start feeling big emotions, is that yeah. there's nothing sad about meditating. <laughs> you know, there's nothing angering about right. meditating. Right. Meditation is an opportunity to release sadness, to release anger. Yeah. You know, I, I've taught a lot of massage therapists and every massage therapist you'll ever meet that I've ever taught will tell mm-hmm. you the same story. Mm-hmm. People cry on massage tables all the time. All the time. Yep. Right. Women more than men, because women tend to be more open and less guarded in that environment. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing sad about getting a massage. Right. right. But what's happening? What's happening is someone's in a place where they feel comfortable and they can relax, exactly. right? One of the, the first condition that allows for catharsis is you have to feel safe, Yeah. right? And this applies whether you're a person or a shelter dog or a kid or anyone, right? You have to feel safe. Yeah. But and I'm so, curious about the apology. Why do people apologize? Oh, because people are embarrassed by emotion. Okay. So can we just get clear right now, right this moment, people? You are allowed to feel any and all of your emotions unapologetically, please, please, please. And what I noticed in this small experiment was that this form or your guidance is very good at taking you quickly to allow your emotions. Yeah. Well, and again, and and if that didn't happen for you, if you're out there listening, yeah. it's simply because that wasn't what the weather report was for your nervous system in that moment. Yes. Right? Thank you. So, thank I mean, yeah. I, I talk about this concept of the weather of your nervous system because mm. the truth is, is that when we're making no attempt to adjust our experience, when we're not trying to go deep, when we're not trying to cultivate gratitude, when we're not mm. trying to focus on something, when we're not trying to be a better person, yeah. when we're not right? When we're letting go of the effort, because effort is just another way of holding on, 
right? Mm-hmm. We have an expectation and then we t- tense up. Right. You know, you, you can't you can't relax by yelling at yourself to relax. Exactly. <laughs> right. Definitely because not. because the effort you can't relax by trying to relax because the effort embedded in the in the verb try is tension. And tension is the opposite of relaxation. Exactly. Right? And yeah. so this notion of letting go, of, of letting flow, can be challenging for especially type A, controlling, sort of active, busy people. But at the same time, like I said, those are the people who are exhausted of trying to control everything and hold yeah. on to everything. Yeah. And if you can show them with a short experience that, oh, it's possible to have this different experience. But the, the rule is that whatever comes up has to be thought of as right. Mm, right like the stream right the stream is the stream sorry Mitch it's not going to go the other direction it's not you know and again you know a lot of people say oh you know I was really enjoying that but then I heard a noise and I got distracted Mm, mm. in this approach to meditation the very concept of a distraction is moot it's literally conceptually it's conceptually not possible to be distracted right is a stream ever distracted a boulder rolls off the hill and splashes into a big pool, mm. right? What happens? The stream flows around it. The course of the stream is now changed. It's not distracted from its path. Right. It just has a new path. And so if you're sitting in meditation and there's a, you know, an ambulance that goes by right. and people are like, I was distracted by that. Like, no, you were attracted by that, mm. right? So you didn't like it. Like you didn't like it because so you call it distraction. We use the right. word distraction to describe experiences that we judge as negative. But really what was happening, actually, you weren't even attracted. You were attracted, right? Attraction is a positive word. Distraction is a negative. But the root of both those words is traction, right? right? It being the mind being pulled along the path of genuine interest. I mean, if a, I, I taught a workshop in, a, in the mission in San Francisco, mm. and I had about 25 people in the class. And in the middle of it, our meditation, these two street folks were having a fairly heated argument about the ownership mm. of a Gucci handbag. Oh, yeah. Like, that's not your Gucci handbag, bitch. You couldn't have a Gucci handbag. You wear Reeboks, like that disqualifies someone. And so, and I knew afterwards, everyone was going to comment on that. And someone said, man, that was really distracting. I go, no, that was really attracting. I said, I got up and looked. They're like, what? I go, yeah, I walked to the window. Is it a real Gucci handbag? Could I see them? What do they look like? And then I went back and meditated. They're like, you got up? I go, yeah. I wanted to know. Like, it it would be weird not to be interested in that. Exactly. So it sounds like... Hang on That's the flow of your attention being pulled in that direction. And to fight it and resist it is ridiculous. So what comes up for me is the word acceptance. It sounds like what you're describing is accepting whatever comes up. Yeah. I would take it a little further. That's so I false. think embracing, I think allowing is a, I, okay, I like a word. Allowing. All allowing. Right, allowing. I like that. All right. So I have questions that I Great. must get to. Hopefully I'll have some answers. Yeah. Oh, good. From people who are on my Facebook page who are now podcast listeners. Mm-hmm. So Sharon Cohen, bless your heart, Sharon, for your question. She wants to know, how do I stay in a meditative state and not fall asleep? That's a great question. So people nod off all the mm-hmm. time when they learn to meditate with me because yeah. it's very relaxing. They're not being asked to do anything or listen to anything. Right. And first, there's only one way that I know to know that you're falling asleep, which is head nodding, right? Like mm-hmm. trying to stay awake in the 8 a.m. Econ 101 class or at the opera, the classic like head bobbing right. and you catch yourself. Right. Like if that's happening, you're falling asleep. Mm. And there is only one reason 
someone falls asleep unless they're seeing my stepbrother who's an anesthesiologist <laughs> is if they're tired yeah right and so you know i'll teach classes sometimes 10 30 in the morning and people are falling asleep i'm like what does that say about them they're exhausted mm. and, you know we have a we are a sleep deprived nation and we power through that with caffeine and sugary snacks and little dopamine hits from social media and mm -hmm. notifications on our phone, right? And we fight through it, but we're exhausted. Mm -hmm. And so if you're falling asleep, you are meditating correctly. I love that. Okay. But what you have to understand is that A, it's correct practice. Mm -hmm. You're falling asleep because you're tired. Okay. B, it's not going to go on for a long time. Okay. Right. It's very common in the beginning, but it doesn't last long because what happens when we when we learn a practice of meditation, especially one that is as deeply relaxing and restorative, mm -hmm. then your sleep starts to get better. And you're also getting these effectively super naps during the day when you're meditating. It begins to pay off that sleep debt. Mm. Like the reason people can't sleep or have poor sleep isn't because their sleep technique is bad. The reason people can't sleep is because they take a huge stress load to bed with them. Hmm. I mean, we've all probably, or most of us, have had nights where we slept fitfully after drinking too much, right? Or partying too hard, right? Why does that happen? It doesn't happen because your sleep technique sucked that night. It happened because your body was processing all those toxins, all that alcohol, mm. right? If you eat a big meal right before you go to bed, you don't sleep so well. Why? Because you're digesting a huge meal while you're sleeping and digestion requires a lot of energy, generates a lot of sensations and byproducts and digestive gases, and it leads to less restful sleep, right? Again, it's not your sleep technique that's bad. It's the, nerve, it's the condition of the nervous system you took to bed. And so when people can't sleep, mm. it's really because they're stressed out and stress is causing them to sort of toss and turn and fidget and wake up and not be able to go back to sleep. And mm. so if you can find ways of reducing stress like meditation during your day, right. then you sleep better. Okay. So you, what you just said brought up three questions for me. <laughs> oh, so, so Sarah, if you're falling asleep, you're doing it right. At least in the technique that I teach. So yeah. Yes. Okay. And so from what you just said, the three questions that come to me are you talk about meditating during the day. So in the form that you teach, uh -huh. do you suggest meditating throughout the day? Do you suggest I suggest people meditate twice a day. I think it's great to start your day with meditation. One of the most radical things I tell people is to meditate before checking your phone. Ah, and people yes. are like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That and is I go, well, yeah. let's think about that. Right. Mm. What do your phones really do? Your phones lurch us out of our morning lethargy mm. with little hits of dopamine and adrenaline. Mm. Right. Ooh, ah, ooh, shit. Oh, no, I forgot about that. <laughs> right. Meeting, yeah, right? right. And they yeah. also start firing up the doer in us. Like, I got to do this. I got to do that. Then I got to do this first. Oh, my God. I can't mm. believe I have to do that again. Yeah. You know, why don't they take me off that project? Da, 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 da. You start to get stirred up and you're still lying in bed. Right. And so I think it is a really powerful thing mm. to ground yourself in something deeper than your to do list. Okay. Right. And allow yourself you know, a bit of clarity, a bit of calm. And then from that more grounded, rested, clarified state, then begin to take action. 
Okay, um, so in that meditation, do you have a prescription for how long? I think 10 to 20 minutes. Oh, I love you already. I mean, works seriously, me. that yeah. works. That works. All right. Yeah, sometimes, and again, in the technique I teach, this doesn't apply to the things like Vipassana, other practices, which are beautiful, more austere, but beautiful, a little mm-hmm. harder to incorporate into life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm all about teaching people that meditation can be easy and accessible because if it's easy and accessible, you have a greater chance of doing it. And if you have a yes. greater chance of doing it, you have a greater chance of benefiting from it. And so right. 10 to 20 minutes, like, you know, I prescribe, I think two 20 minute periods of meditation are great. Sometimes when I check in with people and they're doing it once a day, typically in the morning, yeah. because it's easier to control our morning routine for most people, I'll go, great. You're doing it once a day for 20 minutes. Fantastic. Do it twice a day for 10 minutes. Twice a day for 10 minutes is a fundamentally different, in my opinion, and better practice than meditating longer once. Because not only is it good to start your day in a grounding kind of way, Mm -hmm. grounded kind of way, Mm -hmm. it's also really important to acknowledge that everyone hits a wall at some point during the day, right? Everyone hits a burnout. I mean, when I teach in companies, and as I said, I teach in a lot of companies, Mm -hmm. I can walk into any decent sized company and have a conversation with the HR director. And have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Look, we all can agree the afternoon's a waste of time. Yep. Right? Don't yep. schedule important interviews or presentations in the afternoon because people can be counted on to be crankier, less you know, collaborative. Yeah. Right. There are more fatal car crashes on the commute home in every city in America than the commute to work. Wow. And it's not because the light is in people's eyes, it's because people huh. are fried. They're yeah. burnt out, they're stressed out, and no one is at their best when they're stressed. So I'm curious, you just made me very curious about this. Do you think, so I usually hit the wall like around 3.15, I've noticed, uh-huh. and I want sugar. So do you think yeah. if I sat down before I went for the sugar, you think I wouldn't want the sugar? Absolutely, <gasps> right? Ooh, because again, you know, yeah. when we start to get stressed, yeah. we start to get fatigued, we start to get cranky, Right. When our cortisol levels start to rise, we start to get burnt out. What do people do? Caffeine, sugar, mm, right? Mm. Get angry, get in an argument with someone, right? right Snap right. at someone. And so if instead, and, and all of those things work to some degree, mm-hmm. right? But they all pay a price. They all, we all have a price, yeah. right? Anything, look, we have lots of uncomfortable feelings. Yep. That, and, and we have an array of socially- approved and available methods for blunting or negating or distracting ourselves from those feelings. And all of them have a price. Yeah. Right. And almost all of them have 12 step programs that you can then enroll in <laughs> to deal with at that price. Right. right. If instead of engaging in any of those things, you mm. just sit for 10, 15, 20 minutes and allow everything to reset. Mm. Like it works for our phones, right? right? What happens when your phone starts being slow? Right. right. Or when your computer starts fogging down, you mm-hmm. go, oh, my God, I have 77 browser windows open. Six of them are having videos running in the background. Exactly. Right. I have this app, that app. I have if I close all of that, mm-hmm. then my computer runs better. Well, how many browser windows do most people have open in their brain at 330 in the afternoon? Right. Yes. Lots. Lots. So shut them down. Take yeah. 10 minutes. Okay. And then you will find that you get through that hump mm-hmm. without without the cost, right? Without compromising your sleep, without compromising your waistline, without sort of wasting your time on whatever. And so I think it's a great, a great thing to meditate 
And if you really get into it, you start to notice like, oh, I start to hit this wall at a certain time. That's when I should meditate. No, meditate a half hour before that. And then you won't hit the wall. Oh, all right. I am absolutely going to take this on. And for those of you who are listening, why don't you join me? Let's do a challenge. Let's take it on because I love challenges. So if you're up for it, let's try. I'll give you a link. There's a little free lesson. I mean, this is like the world we live in, right? So it's called a lead magnet, right? So on my on one of my sites, it's like, hey, would you like a free taste of flow meditation? Give me your email address. I can just send you a link that you can provide people. And if if people oh, sign up and they don't want to get my newsletter, yeah. trust me, I'm not going to be offended if people unsubscribe. Okay. I mean, I would Perfect. be a pretty crappy meditation teacher if I got offended when people unsubscribe <laughs> from a marketing right. newsletter. Right. So, yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. So I will post that link yeah. in what's called the show notes. Now, David C. wants to know why the hell he should meditate anyway. Why would I meditate? Yeah. It is to have the fullest experience possible of what it is to be a human being, oh, right? Wow. Which is, I think, a pretty That's a big, pretty big. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> why am I here? I am yeah. here not to get everything done. I'm here, you know, not to be a good mm. person. I'm, I'm here to have the fullest experience of what it's like to be a human being. And for that to be true, mm. I need to have both an understanding and an experience of what I'll call the two truths that underpin human experience. But in more specific answer to David, I do know that stress is the thing that is at the root of almost every dysfunction. Yes. Because stress changes your hormonal chemistry, stress messes up your digestion, your sleep, um, wrecks with your emotions, at least depression, disconnection, right? So stress keeps us in reactive mode. And there's a lot of consequences of that. And so doing anything that reduces stress is going to alleviate at least some of the symptoms that you might be suffering from, no matter what those symptoms are. And yeah, maybe it helps, you know, reduce the impact of diabetes because when we're stressed out, we crave sugary snacks and we have sugar that, you know, so yeah, something there. Yeah. I like it. Okay. So Elizabeth R wants to know, let me read it. I think we might have answered this one, but I'm too busy to meditate It just feels like it's just one more thing to do and I'm exhausted. Could you speak to what benefit I could get by meditating? So I think we've pretty much. It's it's worth it's worth digging in a little bit because that idea of I have too much to do. Right. Is what most people feel. Right. Right. And so and you asked earlier about, you know, why what really is it that keeps people from meditating? Yes. Um. I don't think it's that they have too much to do. I mean, look, I've taught thousands of people. Not a single person has said, I'm here to meditate because suddenly my calendar opened way up and I have plenty of time. Right? Nobody. And nobody I've taught says, hey, now that I learned to meditate, I do so much less and life is so much better. Like, I actually probably do more. I just do it more effectively and enjoyably, Hmm. right, than before I started meditating. So I have another thought about why people don't meditate. And I'm curious what you think, because Uh my own personal experience when I first started meditating was the moment I closed my eyes, I felt enormous fear, enormous. Uh And I 
have um, who wants to feel that? Yeah. And I have a history of trauma. So I know for me personally, a, it was way too scary because keeping my eyes closed was too scary. And B I agree with the next person. So Lori K wants to know, and this was my experiences as well. So when I originally started meditating, the noise in my head was so loud that yeah. it was annoying. And so Lori K wants to know, my chatter in my head is too loud to meditate. So I find meditating frustrating and it seems to make the chatter louder. Is there a meditation form that would make that easier? So, yes. Most people in that situation yeah. tend to want to be guided, mm-hmm. right? They think, oh my God, if I could just find someone with a nice voice who would ask me to imagine <laughs> a series of nice things, then yeah. that would make meditation easier. Yeah. But it doesn't, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. then, you know, then you you lose track and you have to keep backing up. And also, if you're listening to a guided meditation where someone with a nice voice is asking you to imagine and do a series of nice things, right? right no guided meditation ever says, imagine your ex breaking up with you again. <laughs> Imagine you're getting a ticket. Imagine, right? right it's right. all like imagine your heart chakra and right. you know luminous light and all those things, right. right? And they have nice voices. Like, yeah, Gilbert Gottfried is not going to be a good meditation instructor, mm-hmm. right? But what's really happening when you're listening to a guided meditation, especially one of these where they don't stop talking, mm. is you're having about the most shallow experience you can have and call it a meditation because Mm. you're listening, you're visualizing, you're paying attention, you're focusing, concentrating. You're basically having a meeting with your eyes closed. Right. And so it can be entertaining, but it's not going to be deep and restorative. Right. Mm. Right? But it's, it's sort of like papering over your anxiety with a Netflix show, but Mm. instead you're calling it meditation. Mm -hmm. The answer is, to reframe your definition of success, right? Because the thing that I find that most people don't understand is that what they describe as their brain chatter is mm-hmm. that 70% of the, that is the voice that's telling them, you shouldn't be having those thoughts. You shouldn't right. be thinking that. This isn't working, right? right? If you learn that none of those thoughts are bad, and that you're not even trying to have fewer thoughts or nicer thoughts, Mm. then what you remove is 70% of the thinking. And certainly Mm. the loudest, most caustic part of the thinking. Wow. Right? So sitting in meditation and thinking, again, sitting in meditation, having a to-do list thought, like here's like, okay, aware of the breath, and then here's a to-do list thought, and then another to-do list thought, and then you shouldn't be having those thoughts. Mm -hmm. Right? At this point, this is all just thinking. It's when we agree with that judgment Hmm. that we start to suffer. Hmm. You're right. I shouldn't be having those thoughts, but I am having those thoughts. I'm a failure. (laughs) I knew you're a failure, right? So the thought about your to-do list is a thought. The thought that you shouldn't be having the thoughts is a thought. Hmm. The agreement with the thought that you shouldn't be having those thoughts is the problem. Right. Right. Right? And so it's anyone can meditate. And also what Lori, I think, was should understand is that there's a reason that her mind is like that, hmm. right? Most people have very little understanding. Because we experience thinking in the mind, we think the mind is the source of thinking. Right. right? But what is the source of all this agitated thinking? It's hmm. the nervous system, 
right? Oh, it's like I, I use this analogy here. I'm going to hmm. hold this up and you guys won't be able to see this, but Ellen can see it. Yeah. So I'm holding up a biking water bottle. And I'm going to ask you to imagine that it's a bottle of kombucha, right? Okay. I used to say Coca-Cola and then people go, Coca-Cola is bad for you. You should say kombucha. <laughs> I'm fine. So imagine this is artisanal kombucha. Right, okay. the most overused word of our generation. And oh I'm gonna shake the crap out of it. Okay. Right. I'm gonna shake it, 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 shake it. And then if I go to open it, what happens? Huge foamy mess, right? And after <clears throat> complaining and mopping up the sort of eight dollars worth of kombucha you just lost, right? <laughs> nobody, nobody would then look at the cap and say, here's the problem. Some kombucha engineer has to design a better cap. Mm. Right. No, we know the problem is the agitation. Right. Right. Because a bottle of kombucha can get so agitated that the contents, right, can become undrinkable. Right. Right. So now let's look at the mind. Okay. Right. Let's look at the mind and the context of this last crazy <laughs> pandemic year we've had. Mm. Right. We have all been shaken. Yes. Right. Even before yeah. the pandemic, we were shaking ourselves up. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Running, getting my kid to soccer practice, all this stuff. I'm going to do, do, do. And mm. I got to improve myself. I got to be a better person. I got to be more grateful. I got to get my work done. I got to also, you know, I, but I don't want to lose my edge. Like all this right. stuff. Right. right. That is all agitation. Mm. Right. Mm. When someone <clears throat> sits or has an agitated nervous system, mm. what do you think that experience is like in the mind? It's lots of angry thoughts, lots of anxious mm -hmm. thoughts, a lot of worried thoughts, lots of fizzy, bubbly thoughts, right. right? And closing your eyes to meditate doesn't make all those bubbles pop, <laughs> right? Especially when I have these ridiculous ideas about I'm here to silence my mind and have fewer thoughts and gratitude oh and compassion and things. And so the answer is just to allow it to sit mm. without doing anything. Because if you just put a bottle of kombucha on the table and don't do anything to it, it will settle down. Yeah. Your mind is the same. Yeah. The thing that riles Lori up is the fact that she thinks of meditation as something she has to do. Mm. And she has to do it in a certain way and achieve a certain outcome and get rid of mm. these thoughts and emphasize those thoughts. And all of that is just more shaking. Ugh. And so what you can realize with a little instruction mm. is, oh, if I stop shaking, it begins to settle. Mm. And if it begins yeah. to settle, you know, again, the shallowest part of you is the part that wants to go deep. The noisiest part of you <laughs> is the part that wants to shut up your mind. I love right? That. Because your mind yells back. Mm, it's like my yes. kids in the back car, you shut up. No, you shut up. You shut up. You shut up. It doesn't <laughs> stop. It doesn't stop. Right. <clears throat> you know? Oh, so if people have been listening and they are like, oh, James Brown, I need to get some more instruction. Where can they find you? How can they learn more about what you do? Well, I have two websites, unfortunately. I have to condense them down to one. Hmm. I have my main site, which is VedicPathMeditation.com. And it's V as in victory, E-D-I-C, Vedic Path, like a dirt path, Meditation.com. Mm -hmm. And that actually has a link in it to my other site because I created a separate site for my online meditation course. Oh, okay. Which is flowmeditation.cc. Okay. Not .com.cc. But the main site has links to that. Okay. And they can see the different offerings I have. If they're in the Bay Area, I'm starting to teach. And I do online teaching. I do live teaching. I do in-person. I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. But either of those places. And if you forget all of those things, yeah. if you just Google James Brown meditation, I'm pretty sure the other guy doesn't show up. 
Okay. And okay. we will put all of those in the links of the show notes. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want to let us all know about this path that comes to you? Anything else that we should know? We've covered a lot, but anything else? I guess the only thing I would say is that meditation doesn't have to be hard. I love that. Right? It really doesn't. What I love is that you said we can just do it two times a day for 10 minutes a day. For me, that feels so doable. So doable. So I want to thank you so much for offering us a real down-to-earth way to look at meditation and to bring it into our lives. We don't have to go off and be monks. We can do it daily and begin to reap the benefits pretty much immediately. Yeah. I love that. James, thank you so much for bringing your wisdom, your beauty, your down-to-earth, just basic goodness. And I (laughs) really appreciate uh, your energy and your wisdom. And I feel a whole hell of a lot better. So thank you. Good. Thank you. And enjoy your trip to New York. Thank you. And for those who are listening, I will see you next week. Thanks so much for joining me on the Heart and Soul podcast. It's such a joy for me to be with you. I know firsthand how much easier it is to rise when you have community to laugh with, shed a few tears with, and be inspired by. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, go subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas, or you might want to be a guest on my show, please contact me directly at ellennewhouse.com. And while you're there, grab the special resources I have created for you to begin to take inspired action in your own life. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.